When we were singing the song, Come Ye Sinners, which is one of my favorite songs, um, I had this image in my mind of, oh, how many summers ago? 2003, two, two years ago, when we built this stage. Uh, does anybody from the old church, anybody remember the old stage here? Yeah. The old stage was that height, right here, and it came, there was no stairs in the front, it went all the way across, at that height there were steps over there, and those steps over there. And I think in the original architecture, what it was meant to be, in fact, if you look at some of the old pictures, we have an old picture over there, I think there was a, like a little, uh, little fence up here too, which probably would be a bad thing, you're up here so high it felt kind of scary being up here. But it also gave a real clear uh, feeling of just this, you looked up, you know, I I'd be standing, you know, up here, and you looked up and there was this magnificent pulpit up here, and there was this kind of image of an awesome God, and, and we love that at Hope, we, we don't want to diminish that at all. But we really felt that the architecture uh, also communicated, awesome God, stay away. And we wanted to say, awesome God, and we wrapped these stairs around, all the way around, to say, anyone can come. Anyone can come. And that is the message of the gospel. That is the message of the good news of Christ. Is awesome God. Don't want to diminish that at all. Wrap around stairs. Anyone. Anyone. I don't care what your background. You can come. You can come. That is basically the message of the gospel of John. The gospel of John, I think, unlike any of the other gospels, portrays a God that is awesome, but he's constantly wooing you, come on up the wraparound stairs. Come on up. The Gospel of John is probably one of the most read Gospels because of all its simplicity and because of its ability to just, you don't have to have any Bible background whatsoever, and you can understand the Gospel of John. People on campuses give away a Gospel of John to someone who's seeking, and what is Christianity all about? Read the Gospel of John. Probably the most famous Bible verse, uh, possibly uh, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Probably Matthew 7, 1 is now a more famous one. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Why are you judging me? But anyway, um, John 3, 16. People on their deathbed want the Gospel of John read to them because of its comforting words to them. The Gospel of John is an amazing book. And we are today, today, you are going to open your mouth, and I'm going to insert a fire hose I'm going to turn it on wide open. I'm going to insert the entire Gospel of John into your brain. So I hope you brought a lunch. Or stay for the New to Hope lunch. Then we'll all raise our hand. Uh, we, we, we are going to go through the entire Gospel in a way that, that hopefully will give you a feeling for, for this, this Gospel. First of all, before we get into that, we have to talk a little bit about what is a Gospel anyway? What is a Gospel? There are four of them in, in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the word Gospel means, anybody? Oh, you guys are good. You guys are good. means good news. And the, the Greek word for that is euangelion. I can't say it. It, it sounds like in our, in, when we put a V in there, it would be evangelion. Euangelion. You, help me out. Who knows Greek? Yeah, thank you. Why can't I say that? It's just not coming out. Anyway, um, 
That's where we get the word evangelist from. All an evangelist is, you know, you have this picture of a guy with a big old choking Bible in one hand and a finger in the other hand or, or asking for money. Uh, evangelist, all it means is someone who's bringing good news. That's literally what it means. We have a different image of that, of course. And so the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are often called the evangelists because they're the ones who wrote these things down. Jesus never wrote for, for the Best we know, he didn't write anything except in the sand. In John chapter 8, we'll see where he writes something in the sand. He might have been just making a chicken scratch. But we didn't know that Jesus wrote anything down to keep. He didn't write his life story. We have four different eyewitnesses or people who are close to eyewitnesses. Uh, Matthew would have been an eyewitness. John would have been an eyewitness. Luke would have been very associated with Paul and, and uh, others. And Mark would have been very associated with Peter. And so they wrote down uh, these Gospels, and they're, they're not just biographies. They're more than biographies. They're trying to put together the points of Christ's life in a way that will give you a feeling for who they are. So it's beautiful that we have all the different, the different Gospels. Now, one of the questions you might ask is, why do we need, I mean, there's not four books of Acts. The book of Acts covered the first, oh, I don't know, 60 years or so of the church, what, what, uh, why don't we have as, you know, four books of that, or why? And especially, as we did last week, we, we, you know, most scholars now tend to think that the book of John was written last. So somewhere between 80 and 100. Now that's controversial. Some people think it was written as early as 60. Some people even say John was the first gospel written. I really don't, I really don't think that's true, but it, it could be, could be. But even so, let's just go with most scholars here and say that it was the last gospel written. You already got three. You already got three. And they agree so much. Why do we need a fourth? That's a great question. Why do you need a fourth gospel? Why are, do we need the gospel of John at all in our Bibles? And that, I want to take that tack in, in kind of giving you an overview of the book of John this morning. Is Why, why is it even there at all? And I have five reasons why I think it's there. Uh, you're, the notes in your in insert are not the greatest this morning, so you just kind of have to follow along the best you can. First one. First reason is there, it's an impossibility for any one account to cover the entire story. Now, if I was really good with PowerPoint, I'd have this all laid out. But just think of, think of uh, a three-year period in, in anyone's life. Uh, let's just pick somebody important. Um, Let's pick, uh, let's pick, somebody help me out here. Somebody important. Let's pick Bono. Bono, he was in town. Bono, three-year period of his life, okay? So here you got this Bono deal, and you got three years, let's just say the last three years, just for kicks, okay? And so I know he did a trip to Africa in there, and uh, I, uh, uh, he did a bunch of other stuff too. So he, he uh, I just picked him in my brain, so I had no time to research this. You got... You got Bono. He's done all this stuff. All these concerts, all these political stuff that he's doing. He's a great guy, whole thing. All right. Now, you're limited to about, what is a gospel? 10 pages? 15 pages? You know, in most Bibles? You're limited to that amount to talk about three years of Bono's life. And so you have all these events, you have these series of events all over here and all over here. Got like, say, you got 300 events. Maybe more. Maybe 500 events. And as a biographer, what you're going to do is if you're going to, you're going to lay all those events out and then you're going to pick kind of, you're kind of got a, you're going to get kind of a smell of Bono and you're going to want to try to communicate that image of Bono and, and you're going to kind of pick these events, maybe 
30 or 20 of these events along line of this, and it's going to give you a certain feel of him. Somebody else could come across and pick maybe some of the same events, maybe the real high points, but might pick other small things. Uh, and one of the events that many people don't know much about is Bono's relationship with his father. It was horrible. There's a book just put out by it. And, and so maybe you'd pick that event or you go through that tack or whatever. That's what's happening in the Gospels. The Gospel writers are picking and choosing events as they go through, these, through the chronology of Christ's ministry and they're doing it, they have a reason. They want to give you a certain picture of Jesus that they're interested in. So it's not just a biography. It would be a huge book then. It's not. They're picking a, a certain amount to give them. They have an agenda. They want you to see a certain aspect of this whole thing. It's too much to write it. The Gospel of John even says that. He says in, in John 21, he says, This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. He's saying, listen, I'm just picking certain ones here because I want you to see who Jesus is and I have a certain agenda I want you to see. And all the Gospels did that. It's beautiful that we have four. They're all different. They're all different. So that's the first one. Is all four of them make the story much richer because you're looking at it from four different angles. Second reason why we need a fourth Gospel is the authorship, who wrote the book, and the date of the book. Now I tend to think it was written later. There are people who think it was earlier. If you're among them, that's totally fine. But the author, John... Remember John? We looked at him last week. John was, Jesus named him Son of Thunder. John was a piece of work. Remember? Shall we call down fire from heaven to consume these people? And then later we see John asking Jesus a question. And in his gospel, he says, he leaned against his bosom. He says that. In it. So John changes from this guy who's this rough, tumble guy to this tender-hearted man. Tender-hearted man. He completely changes. So the author of the book of John is a man who's completely been transformed. He's called the Apostle of Love. 21 times in the 21 chapters of the book of John, the word love is used. If that sounds like a lot, 30 times in the seven chapters of 1 John, 2 and 3 John. 2 John's one chapter, right? 2 John, 3 John, they're one chapter. 1 John's five chapters. Seven chapters total. 30 times the word love is used. This guy is into love. This guy's transformed. So now we get this guy who was totally transformed. He, he was someone who's very rough and tumble. He becomes this guy who's just a lover. And the most important thing was he's the only apostle of the 12 that writes a gospel who's in the, what they call the inner circle. There's an inner circle with the apostles that knew Jesus a little bit better. Peter James and John, sometimes people include Andrew in that. If you want to include him, it's fine. He still didn't write a gospel. The only one who wrote a gospel was John. And so when John's writing, he's writing more than just events. He's, you, you get more of Jesus' heart in the gospel of John than you do in any of the other ones. John has an agenda in his book. He wants more than just to lay down a factual account of things like Luke he wants to elicit a response from people. In John chapter 20, 
He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this, this gospel is precious. They're all precious. But John, whew, we have got the real deal right in this thing. And he's had time. If you take a later account, if you take a 90 or 80 to 90, someone there, John is in his 60s or 70s or perhaps even his 80s as he's writing this thing. He's an older man. He's had a chance to see life. And he's writing this. He's had a lifetime to reflect upon it. Now, this is going to sound weird, but my third reason <laughs> is because what John does not include in the gospel. I know that sounds really weird. Like, why would that be a good reason to include something if he doesn't, he, he forgets some things. Or he doesn't forget them. He just doesn't talk about it. And they're not minor things that he doesn't include. It's one of the reasons I believe that John was written last. is because he talks about things that just make you, like he'll talk about uh, Peter and he'll say, Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. We don't even know who Peter is. He's assuming you've read the other Gospels, in my opinion. Talks about Jesus in a way, never talks about his baptism. Whoa, that's a major point. There are seven things that he, uh, he doesn't talk about. He just doesn't talk about like the other Gospels. First one is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In the other Gospels, if you count them up, it's 115 times that that's used, that phrase. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. It's only four times in John, and it's only really two verses because it's kind of used twice. Twice. And it's not even explaining the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. He just uses it. In John 3, he says, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. Then he says it again in the end. Uh, in the very end of the gospel, he says something to, to Pilate. Uh, uh, this, my kingdom is not of this world. He's not explaining it. It's like, the other gospel writer is like, that's their main thing. John says, I, you know, puts a footnote there and says, read Matthew. <laughs> Second thing is there's no virgin birth. There's no virgin birth. If all we had was John, there would be no Christmas. There'd be no pageants. There'd be no shepherds. There'd be no kids banging one another with the shepherd's nooks and that. <laughs> he doesn't say a word about the virgin birth. Isn't that kind of amazing? But he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't say a word about the Lord's Supper. Oh, you could kind of infer it from what happens up in the upper room last day, but not really. He doesn't institute the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. It's never said in the Gospel of John. He doesn't say, he doesn't give any parables. No parables. Not one. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like, he doesn't say the kingdom of heaven. So he'd have to say, uh, this ship is like, or he's have to talk something else. He doesn't, he never does. He doesn't give any stories. He gives long discourses in the Gospel of John instead. You don't see that in the other Gospels. You don't see anything about his transfiguration. That the great scene where Peter doesn't know what to say and says, shall we build a tent for everybody? No, Peter, it's cool. Uh, there's nothing about that. There's nothing about casting out demons in the Gospel of John. Nothing. That's amazing. That's a major part of the book of Mark is Jesus being of an authority over demons. Nothing about it in the Gospel of John, there's no temptation of Christ. In, in, there's no, no uh, is it Matthew 4, with this great scene where Jesus is tempted by the devil. It's not in the Gospel of John. And there's no, I already said it, but there's no baptism of Jesus. 
which is huge in the Gospel of Mark and other places. That's the, the, the starting point of Jesus' ministry. It's when everything gets un, unveloped. It's, it's not at all. There, in the Gospel of John. Now you're saying, what, why does that make John important? I think it makes John very important. He's, I think, he's pre, I think he has copies of the other Gospels right in front of him. And I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. And he, he's saying, I'm doing something here that is assuming you know that some of those historical facts, and I'm adding to it. Then, there are features, there are things that are exclusively in the book of Acts. By the way, I hate that word exclusive. Oh, God, I hate that word. You know when they come out and Channel 4 or Channel 5 says, we'll be the exclusive one with this interview, which basically means don't turn to the other stations, eh? Because we paid them money, so we're the only ones. I got an email this week, and I'm not going to name the company because it would be very embarrassing to them. It said, it was, a, an, outreach, it was an outreach something, <laughs> and, uh, and, and they, were, they were trying to get us to buy, I get these emails all the time, buy some postcards that we'd send out so that we could use the, the, the movie, the uh, Narnia movie, what's that called? Um, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, as that's coming out. And uh, they want us to buy this stuff to use that as kind of a way to draw people into the church. Use the movie, to, and that's fine. Nothing, that's okay. But what it said was this. It says, your exclusive home for Narnia resources. And I thought, oh my goodness. Let's buy the rights so that only we can market this movie so people can come to know Christ. Oh my goodness. Jesus with a whip? Can you see that? Anyway, um, I digress. There, there are things that are unique in the Gospel of John that you only see in the Gospel of John. The first one is his early ministry in Judea. Uh, John, I put John 1 and 2 there. That should be, excuse me, it should be 2 and 3. You don't see that. You don't see any of that stuff in the other, the other Gospels. You don't see that he takes uh, at least three trips to Jerusalem, probably four trips to Jerusalem for different feasts. It's the only way that we'd know that there's, Jesus had a three-year ministry. If you looked at the other Gospels, you'd kind of look at it and figure out one year. But through John, you see through different Passovers, it covers over a span of three years. The whole miracle of changing water into wine. The great story of Nicodemus. Oh, I can't wait to talk about Nicky. That's great stuff in chapter 3. The account with the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. That is classic stuff. If you haven't read that yet, oh, read John 4. Uh, the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus is not in the other Gospels. There's other raisings from the dead, but not of Lazarus. Oh, that's such a great passage. Oh, we're going to get there too. And then, 10 of the 21 chapters in the book of John are all dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. It's like almost half the book, if you do your math. It's amazing how much he focuses on this last trip to Jerusalem and what's going to happen there. So it's this huge account of what takes place. So John is a very, very unique book. Last reason why. This one's going to take us a little while. Last reason why John is important is because John has an agenda. You see, it's like a bite. Remember I told you about those things you're doing in Bono's life. You're telling these things. He's telling certain, certain things along the story. And he has an agenda. There's no doubt about it. He's telling this for a reason. He wants to get you to see an aspect of Christ. He's got a the theological agenda. He wants to show you something about God, something about Christ. I think there are five things that John does that are unlike the other Gospels. They're, they're richer than the other Gospels. And the other Gospels have their main things too, no doubt. But John 
does this. Number one, who is Jesus? Now, when I, when I do a Gospel of John study with people, uh, and uh, is Carrie Wold here? Carrie Wold in this service? There you are. Remember when we did Gospel of John? It was your job to write down. We have people write down, and at the end of every study, we spend about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes writing down the answer to the question from the passage we study, who is Jesus? And we, I don't know, I don't know. you still have that by any chance? Do you? It's like pages upon pages, and we got through what, five chapters or something like that? It's just pages upon pages of who is Jesus? So we study the passage, and we just look at who is Jesus. It's amazing. Now, I just want to give you a little taste. So here we go. First taste. Open your mouth like a bird, baby bird. And it's coming at you, all these passages. <clears throat> John opens his gospel. We'll look at this in two weeks. John opens his gospel with this. In the beginning was the word. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Now that's way different than the other gospels. The other gospels, you have to wait at least Eight chapters. Thinking of Mark 8. I'm not familiar where it happens in the other. It'd be Matthew. Jeez, is it, is it 16 in Matthew? Matthew 16, 18, where Peter makes the great confession. Uh, I mean, it's deep into the Gospels before you get this idea that, oh my goodness, this Jesus is God. John 1, 1. Uh, open mouth, insert God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, and the Word was God. Wow, there it is, right there. He lays it on, on the table. John 6, 35 says, and, and, and one thing you're seeing in, in, in the book of, of uh, John is John is in love with these I am statements where Jesus says, I am something. And he, and, and he doesn't give any parables, but these are like parables. He says, I am, mm, and the mm is something that makes you kind of scratch your head and go, hmm. The first one is John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is a master of, of, of messing with the metaphor. It just, that's just what they did in that culture. So you can't go, how does bread quench my thirst? That, that's not how it works. It just does, okay? So that's just the way it works in these deals. Jesus says, I, I, I'm, I'm bread. You can eat me and you will be satisfied. John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid down, lays down his life for his sheep. John 10, if you are all wondering what Jesus Christ thinks about you, read John chapter 10 tonight before you go to bed. Oh, what a great chapter. He says, I am the good shepherd. By the way, that's radical because, anyone? Whoa, I heard nothing but the fans. Say it again. Shepherd is a holy person in the Old Testament. Two places, Ezekiel chapter 34 and Psalm 23. God is a shepherd, and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. It's a radical claim to being, to being God. John 13, I am telling you this now before it happens, so that when it, he's telling his disciples this, I'm telling you all this stuff, and when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. And the he there is capitalized. So when he means is I am he, he means I am he. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very famous passage about what Jesus is. 
and John, and probably the Magna Carta of all I am statements, the mothership, is John 8, 54 to 59. Jesus is arguing with Jewish people. He's arguing with them. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. Jesus is pretty straightforward here. <clears throat> but I, I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews say, you're not even 50 years old yet. And you've seen Abraham? And then Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, when you define yourself in the past tense with a present tense verb, right? Before he was born, I am. Or as we'd say on the Iron Range, I just is. <laughs> that phrase right there to a Jew was something you never said. You never said, I am. You don't do that because that is what when Moses asked God, who shall I say is sending me back to the Israelites, God said, tell them I am sent you. It's the most holy name of God. You don't just throw that name around. And when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, look how the Jews respond. At this they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because it's blasphemy to say you're God. That's what he said. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple ground. So John is very interested in telling you who is Jesus. It's awesome. I, oh, we're going to love this ride. I just picked a few here. There's so much more. Secondly, John's second agenda is he is very interested in not only telling you who Jesus is, but all along the book he's going to sprinkle in what your response to Jesus should be. He puts it right in the first chapter. I didn't put it there in this one. Uh, but he, right in the first chapter, he tells you what our response should be. In John 3, 3, in this, in, this, in this conversation with Nicodemus, which is classic, he says, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. That phrase is only used in the book of John as far as the Gospels go, that, that born again. And of course, Nicodemus says, huh? And he even says, how can a man climb into his mother's womb a second time? It's like, hello, light is not on. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. You have to be spiritually born again. And he says in John 4.10, he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. He says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and he, he, he asks her for a drink, and, and, and she says something back to him, and then, and, then, and then he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you, and here's a great phrase, living water. And it's great when we get to, she's so clueless. I mean, I love her. We're all that way. But she says, where can I get some? I won't ever have to come back to the well. And Jesus is like, okay, it's an analogy. <laughs> John's third agenda is he's very interested in telling you what the benefits are, of believing are. There are huge benefits to believing, huge. And John is littered throughout the whole book. We're going to see this time after time after time. He's interested in wooing you to Jesus by saying, it is worth it. First of all, he says, 
In the first chapter, this is the one I alluded to just a minute ago, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Wow. Children born not of natural descent nor of a human's, human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. It says you can be a child of the king. Secondly, in John 3, 16 through 18, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. He says, you can know what's going to happen to you in the afterlife. You can know by believing in the Son. I have to guess, I have to wonder, I have to hope in, in a vain hope, but a real hope that says it's sure. And then he says in John 5, 24, he says, uh, I tell, Jesus speaking, he says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, here's this idea of if you do this, here's the benefit of believing, here's what happens. He has eternal life and will not be condemned in the future but something's happened right now. He has crossed over from death to life. There's something going on right now. There's a life involved right now by being a follower of Jesus. And he says in John 7, one of my favorites in the book of John, it says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice. So Jesus is kind of making himself for the first time public here in Jerusalem in John chapter 7. And he stands up and just screams this to the whole crowd. If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. You want to just be tickled on the inside and flowing with life? Follow Jesus, he says. It's not just about one day I'm going to heaven. No, today, from my toes, I can feel alive. And then he says, as he's praying this prayer in John chapter 17, he explains what this life is all about. He says, he's praying to, to, to God, the Father, and he says, for you granted him, he's speaking of himself, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He defines what this life is. This life is about knowing God, knowing Christ. That's what life really is. That's what you're designed to do. So there's huge benefits. I just, I'm scratching the surface here. I know. But, but this is the benefits of believing. Why do it? Why bother? Is it worth it? It's totally worth it. If you go through the Gospel of John, by the time we're done the next 12 years, it, if, if, if by the end of it you go, What's it, was it really worth it to believe? We've not done a faithful job of looking at the Gospel of John. Fourth thing on John's agenda, theological agenda, is the cluelessness, and it's classic, it's almost comedic, of the cluelessness of most people as they're encountering Jesus. In John chapter 2, he comes to the Jewish people. That, the word analogy just must not be in the Jewish vocabulary, because everything is just taken literally. John chapter 2, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoke. Anytime Jesus, when he spoke to Nicodemus, you'll see that in John chapter 3. You must be born again. He's clueless what he's talking about. When he's speaking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and he talks about 
uh, living water. She is hung up on how much can I, how can I get this so I don't have to come back here? Is there like plumbing I can get to this living water, come to my house, or what's the deal? No, I'm not talking about water. John chapter 6, he's using this analogy again. And he says, for the, bread of God is he, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Oh, sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. In other words, we're hungry, we want bread. No, no, no. Then Jesus declared, I, you know, I can just see him when he says this one. No, 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 no. I am the bread of life. I, 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 I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry, and he who believes me will never be thirsty. And then at the end of his relationship with his disciples in John chapter 14, Thomas is one of the disciples, and he's asking Jesus a question. John 14, 14 verse 5, it says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? That's when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then you just got to love uh, Philip here. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, show us the Father, and, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And then he says, how can you say, show us the Father? I've been with you for 14 chapters here. How can you say that? I'm glad that most people in the Gospels were clueless. These disciples whom we idolize now, they're clueless because I am clueless too. It's so encouraging to see that. And John highlights that. He wants to let people be seen in all their humanness. They don't get it. They just don't get it. And the last thing in the book of John that is, I think, one of the huge reasons why it's such a valuable thing to have is John is into these painting these broad painting of polar opposites. He's into painting these pictures of, of images that just make you think. The first one is life versus death. John 5, 24. And we already read this one. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will, will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death over to life. And you'll see that theme in the Gospel of John. Life is used numerous times in the Gospel of John in, in contrast to death. Then he's talking about the difference of being from above and from below. There's things that are above and things that are below. I was just thinking of this one. And that, this is a, a, for the Christian, you should have a mindset that looks at things from God's point of view and not necessarily from our point of view. Our point of view says how in the world can a loving God allow Hurricane Katrina and then read it a come? How can that be? God's point of view, if you look at things from above, says, how come there aren't hurricanes 24-7 all the time? Why is there ever a moment where we don't have hurricanes? That's actually a bigger problem than one hurricane. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not into hurricanes. But it's a bigger problem from God's point of view, looking at it that way, for him to view the world at all with compassion and kindness at all is amazing. We look at it the flip side and say, God, you did one bad, you allowed one bad thing to happen. What's wrong with you? Without praising him for my next breath. Anyway, I digress. The, the, uh, um, John 8, Jesus says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Then light and darkness is a huge theme in the book of John. John 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, 
but the darkness has not understood it. There's this contrast of lightness and darkness going on. Truth versus lies. John 8, you belong to your father. He's arguing with the Jewish people, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Constantly co confronting what is true and what you want to hang on to for, for convenience sake or whatever you thought you've known. Jesus separating those two. Chapters 9 and 10 are just filled with this whole concept of uh, sight versus blindness. And he heals a guy from, from blindness, and it becomes a metaphor for those two chapters. In chapter 9, he's again arguing with the Jewish people, and, and Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So this, this, this whole metaphor of sight, I can see, and blind, I can't. And then the last big one in, in the book of John, or actually in the writings of John too, is this whole world versus world. <laughs> John is into the world. I'm thinking, I think it's used 98 times alone in the book of John, or 58, or somewhere in between. I didn't write it down. Um, somebody count real quick. It, it's a lot. The world is used a lot. And he says about the world... He uses it very, John uses it very derogatorily. In John 15, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you did not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And I want to quote from 1 John here too, just to give you one more indication of what John, the Apostle John, thinks of this word world. He says, do not love the world, in 1 John 2, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he defines clearly what he means by this word world. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. So when he uses this world, he uses it in a worldly, fleshly way. The cravings of his sinful, let's make sure I get those right. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting about what he has and does. Those things that you can try to seek life apart from God on, he says, that's worldly. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. He's got this contrast going on. At the same time, when he uses that word about the world, that's when John 3.16 is quoted. For God so loved the world. Isn't that awesome? At your absolute worst, God looked down and God has great eyesight and saw the world. Now, if I were God, zoop, gone. Start over. I did it. I did it in one word, right? New world. New world. Looks at the world. And that's why John 3.16 should, if it doesn't just shake at your core, that those words are in the right, those same order. For God so loved the world that he gave. That'll blow you away. I got a closing question for you this morning. I hope you feel a little bit like you just took a drink from a fire hose because that's what I intended to do. We start into it. 
verse by verse, starting in a couple weeks. My question for you this morning is, are you ready to encounter Jesus? Are you ready to encounter Jesus for all that he is? Are you ready to let some of your presuppositions about who you think Jesus is go and let the gospel of John permeate and change you from the inside out? Some of you, maybe for the first time in your lives, you're coming here and you have no clue who Jesus is. That, you're actually in some ways better off than many of us who have these preconceived notions. You're coming with an empty slate and that's great. Some point in there, you will be challenged by the gospel of John to commit yourself to him. Somewhere in there, the Gospel of John is going to ask you, are you ready to receive him into your life? Are you ready to open the door of your life and say, Jesus Christ, come in. Yet to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. To others of us, we're going to have to really strip away some of our our caricatures, our all-American boy Jesus that hangs on our wall with some of the images we're going to see from Jesus. And it's it's going to radically change the way we think about him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this book. I thank you that we have the opportunity now to study it as a church. I pray, God, more than anything else that we would not miss Jesus. We would not miss the forest for the trees. We would not miss what John is trying to help us with, and that is to believe for everyone in this room. God, that we'd become believers in the risen Christ, the one who came, the Word, who came to teach and to minister and to heal, but most importantly, to die on the cross for our sins and to be raised victorious over them. Jesus, you're alive right now, just as much as you were when you physically walked on the earth. Right now, by your Spirit, each person in this room is at a different place. Each person in this room has different things that they need from you this morning. Maybe not a single word of this message was appropriate for them, but by your Spirit, you can speak to them right now. And you can tell them what it is you want them to do. You you can comfort them. You can encourage them. For some in this room, you may need to challenge them. You may need to nudge them. Push them on the path you want them to go. God, as we sing these last songs, would you just work in our hearts and have us to respond so that we can encounter the Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name.